first letter to Timothy, and I, I think that, um, that those particular writers have a point that in this passage, Paul summarizes his own intent. Uh, he's planning on being in Ephesus, at least, he hopes, before too long. But I, I like the way, uh, if we were to paraphrase it and not, and not do any damage to the Greek, he's basically saying that while I'm away, I'm writing to you so that everyone might know how to behave themselves within the church. And we might title this, this sermon, Behave Yourself. Because how the church behaves has a massive impact on the church's influence in the world. But Paul goes on to tell us in this passage what that influence is. He goes on to summarize uh, what he has written. And the purpose of what he has written is to tell us how one ought to live, ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Now, this really goes back um, probably to chapter 2, verse 1, and everything that he's written since then, where he says, First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, so that, he would be, that we would be a praying congregation. It is Paul's intent, he goes on to say, that he would have men everywhere lift up holy hands in prayer, without wrath and dissension, that churches should not be filled with wrath and dissension. And sadly, so many churches, even in Paul's day, were at least containing of uh, difficult situations. We think of um, the church at Philippi, which was otherwise a very strong and solid church, and yet there were a couple of women there who apparently were not getting along, Euodia and Syntyche. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have the church at Corinth, which was just total mess. But Paul says that there should be none of that, but we should be a praying congregation and that we might lead quiet and peaceable lives. He goes on to teach the roles of men and women in their places in the church, and we've had occasion to talk about that, that Paul was not a misogynist, he was not a chauvinist, but rather, as we learn from his letter to the Corinthians in chapter 7 of that book, that the role of men and women in the church mirrors the role of the Godhead, the Father and the Son, within the Holy Trinity. Paul goes on to teach about the leadership in the church, elders and deacons, who are to be directing the word ministry and the service ministry, respectively, within the church. This is how it is supposed to be in the household of God. One author says, this mandate is not optional. The church is the household of the living and judging God. It must maintain its sanctity because of its essential function as a guardian of the truth. And that's really where the whole book boils down to. He's going to be talking about that again later on. But he, he says in verse 15 that we might know how we ought to conduct ourselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. And that, I hope, will, will come out in our discussion this evening, that the truth is what the church has within the world. We talked a little this morning in Sunday school about how the world has believed the lie, but the truth, as it is in Jesus Christ, has been entrusted to the church. And Paul here says that the church is the, the pillar or the foundation as well as the bulwark or the wall about the truth. It is the responsibility of the, of the church to both uphold and protect the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. But to that end, order 
is essential. I have been told often, especially in the, in the uh, earlier years of my ministry when Fellowship Bible Church was, was going through a lot of changes, particularly with the leadership model of the church, the pastoring elder model of the church, I was frequently told that there are many ways that a church may be ordered. And I'm not sure that that is very accurate. But it is really believed by even Reformed theologians that the polity of the church, the structure of the church, is something that, that God has left to each individual church to determine. I think he's given us a great deal of guidance. Whether he's given us every detail, I think, is, is arguable. But he's given us a great deal of guidance. And, and I think I, I agree with the commentator who said this mandate is not optional. But order is something that, that we don't really appreciate in the church. In fact, uh, sometimes we're just happy if there is no open and grievous sin being committed within the church. Pastors are, are happy when there's, there's no open dissension, there's no disagreement, an argument among the congregants of the church without much consideration, perhaps even without much time to think about order. But Paul reminds Timothy what the church is so that Timothy may remind the church what she is. And, and I think that's a, a duty that is incumbent upon the pastors in every church is to periodically remind the church what she is. And this is the passage that we go to, not only the church of the living God, in which Paul is casting a, a, a dig at the mystery religions and the temple of Artemis and all of the other temples that filled the city of Ephesus. He calls the church the church of the living God, not of a dead idol. But as far as we are concerned in, in our purpose for being, the pillar and support of the truth. He starts out by saying that we are the household of God, and he has just said earlier about elders and deacons that if they don't know how to manage their own household, how shall they manage the household of God? And so the metaphor that is really kind of the, the guiding one of this passage is to view the congregation of Christians in, in any location as a, as a household, and not just as a family living within a building, but as a household. And in a household, there are many things that have to be set in order. And I think we may have gone a little overboard within Protestantism when, when we say, you know, that the church is not the building. Well, that, that is true. The church is not the building. No building really matters. But in practical reality, the building is where we meet. And so we have spiritual gifts, for example, the gift of administrations, the gift of helps. We have deacons. Who, who take care of things like waiting tables and serving meals and making sure that benevolence is distributed evenly. There are practical matters within the church and they are to be managed well as if the church is, as it is, the household of God. God, of course, is the perfect father and he knows how to manage his household well. The church of the living God, not the temple of a dead idol, but the assembly of a God who is alive. Jesus made that point to the Pharisees that, that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not a God of the dead, but a God of the living. And as a living God, he is a God who sees. And I think scripture is, is just full of passages that remind us that while we think we get away with things, God sees all. 
That doesn't mean that we are to, uh, to pretend to live in sinless perfection, but rather that we acknowledge our sins, as John says, before the Lord, that we confess our sins because He knows them anyhow, knowing that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we are, we're a household, um, and, and I guess the analogy is, you know, the, this maybe is old and, and isn't used anymore, but the, the typical wait till your father gets home. You know, that e even though the, the father is away from the house, the, the children still have the sense in which the father's eyes still see. Now, for me, it wasn't my eyes, it was my ears. My children could not understand how I could hear what I did in the far reaches of the house because my hearing is, is perhaps a bit too acute. But uh, the, the father's eyes are upon his children. And he sees what goes on. He sees into our hearts. And so we have no need or certainly no benefit to try to hide anything that we know that he sees already. So he is a seeing God as well as a living God. And in that, he sees our conduct. And so the, the sermon and, and Paul's... There's one commentator I read who, who seems to think that Paul's letter to Timothy was because there was a great deal of sin in Ephesus. And really, it's the first time I ever th heard that thought. When I read the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians, I don't get the sense that they were mired in sin and disagreement, not like Corinth, of course. And when I read the epistle of Paul to Timothy, I don't get the sense that, that, that Timothy is, is, is riding a raging bull but rather, this is how things ought to be in a church. So I don't think the sermon or the letter is about sin. Rather, it's about order. It's about how things ought to be within the church. Because when the church is as it ought to be, then the truth, the truth, capital T, is magnified in the world through the church. As I said earlier, this is considered to be the heart passage of 1 Timothy, the essence of Paul's teaching and his view on the church. In all his letters, Paul seeks to preserve the dignity and sanctity of the church. And I think he would be saddened if he were to, uh, to be able to come back and visit the churches. He would be saddened not so much by the sin in the modern church. I think he would always be grieved by sin. Or, or even the worldliness that has entered into the church but rather, I think he would be most grieved by the apathy that most American Christians, at least, show with regard to the church. The fact that the church is really a voluntary society, that we can attend at our whim and whichever one we desire, but a complete misunderstanding and loss of understanding of what it is the church is about. Some people believe that the church is a place where we gather with like-minded Christians and we don't do any sin. We don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't dance, we don't do any of that wicked behavior of the world, and we preserve ourselves within the church. Well, that's not what Paul says. Other people believe that the church is, is essentially a social club. It's where business is conducted. Among people who, who have things to do on Monday, they start talking about it together on Sunday. Others believe the only purpose of the church is to preach the gospel. The effects of dispensationalism on the American church is the idea that Jesus Christ will not come back until the last Gentile is saved. Now that's actually 
and, and unbeknownst to them, that's actually a, a, a very reformed thought because underlying that is the belief that there's a certain number of Gentiles that will be saved. Uh, they're called the elect, but they don't use that word. But when that last one is saved, then God will tell his son to come back and get the church. And so if we can get the gospel out to the most number of people in the most efficient way, then we will speed up that process of getting people saved so that Jesus will come back. A very mercenary view of evangelism. Um, and so many churches just absolutely devote themselves to missions and to evangelism as if that is the purpose of the church rather than a function of the church. I would say the purpose of the church is right here in this verse, verse 15 of 1 Timothy chapter 3, the pillar and support of the truth. The second word translated the New American Standard support is a word that is not found anywhere else in the New Testament and isn't found all that often in the Greek outside of the Bible. So um, you might have a different translation in your English. Uh, the first word generally means a foundation or a pillar, something that holds something else up. The second word tends to uh, come from a family of words that means a bulwark or a wall, something that is placed around to defend. If it is in fact a support, then it's somewhat, um, what's the word, repetitive. A pillar and a support would be the same thing. If it is a bulwark, then, and I think that is probably correct in light of Paul's teaching elsewhere, then the church's function is to support truth and to defend truth. That's why we're here. Truth is something very powerful in the mind of man, always has been. Truth lies at the, the, the foundation of all philosophy as men seek after the truth. Pilate's question to Jesus when he asked our Lord, what is truth? was not indicating an interest, but rather a philosophy that was prevalent in Pilate's day that basically said that there is no truth. Immanuel Kant, in the 18th century, wrote a book quite famous within philosophy, The Critique of Pure Reason. Kant personalized reality, telling us that what is real is what is in our mind. What is outside of our minds is not real. And so reality is within our minds, and reality being essentially synonymous with truth, he relativized truth. And ever since Kant, and definitely very powerfully in our own age, truth is a, a relative quantity that is determined by each individual. And so it's a very hard world which we live in, but I wanted to point the two out because our world imbibing Kant's philosophy is really no different than Paul's world imbibing Stoic philosophy. Truth was not something that was universally accepted, the idea that there is a universal truth in Paul's day any more than in ours. But Jesus said that knowing the truth will set us free. He also said that truth will sanctify us. And Paul writes elsewhere that the truth is in Jesus Christ. So here he puts the church in a position of being the foundation and the bulwark or the wall of truth. And I would submit that what he is saying here in all of his descriptions and as we move forward in 1 Timothy 
as well as the other pastorals. He's reminding Timothy, this, this is why you're in Ephesus. He says in chapter 4, verse 6, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. In verse 11, he says, Prescribe and teach these things. Verse 15, Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them, so that your progress may be evident to all. There are a lot of things that we can do in the church. And there are a lot of things the church does do. Many churches. Counseling, for example. When I first became an elder at Fellowship Bible Church, I found out that, that there was a, a great desire for people to, to meet with me in counseling. Counseling, counseling. And then after a few years, I realized that that's actually a way that people remain in whatever issues they're in. They just keep going back to counseling. For me, it was very reminiscent of Roman Catholicism. As long as I go to confession, then the rest of the week doesn't really matter. As long as I go to counseling and unburden myself upon someone else, then I really don't have to change anything. And after a few years, I finally decided I'm not doing that anymore. Because I have nothing to offer in and of myself. And there's nothing in the scriptures that promises that a, a pastoring elder will have anything more powerful than the Holy Spirit within the Word of God. We don't, we're not a counseling church. And not even biblical counseling, which, is the big, which was the big rage in the 1990s. Neuthetic counseling. You know, give it a different name and it, it, it's going to be more powerful. But no, it isn't. Recovery groups. So that's the big thing now. You know, the, not just the 12-step, because that's not Christian. We have to have our own Christian version of the 12-step. But we're basically full of divorce recovery groups, of alcoholic recovery groups, of, of unemployment recovery groups, of recovery recovery groups, if you're recovering from a recovery group. There, there are so many in the church. Political activism. This was really powerful in the 1980s when I was a young believer, the moral majority, and the commentaries of Cal Thomas. I mentioned Cal Thomas, not that he was the only one writing Christian commentaries on political activism, but that he was the one who stopped doing that and announced to his reading readership that that wasn't the way to go about it. The way to go about it was to be back in church, learning from the scriptures, learning from God through his word. And he no longer is a political commentator because he recognized that that is not the approach that Jesus intended so political activism and moral crusades have never brought about the glory of the kingdom of Christ because they are a distraction. Church growth plans and missions and outreach, uh, these are also very popular. How do we get our churches larger? How do we get more people into them? Well, it's not so, many, it's not so much the people that are in them, but what's being taught to those people when they're there. None of these things are necessarily bad. Some are definitely good. I think that um, seeing the church grow, missions, outreach, these are good things. These are, these are products of a healthy church, products of an active spirit within the church. But all of them have been and, and will be distractions from the church's primary function as the pillar and the bulwark of the truth. It's really hard for me to see that Paul intended anything else for the churches that he established and nurtured than that they be faithful upholders of the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. Paul's vision of the truth 
I think is captured in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 10. He talks about the revelation that is being given through him to the church to the intent that now unto the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places might be made known through the church the manifold wisdom of God. That's a pretty heavy mission. That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the powers and the principalities in the heavenly places. I would say for most of the church growth authors, most of the outreach gurus, most of the nuthetic counselors, that their view of the, view of the church is far too small. Our view of the church in the United States in our generation is that it's a place where each one of us can go and get personalized help. Whether it be counseling, whether it be uh, political wisdom, whatever it may be, we come to the church thinking, what can I get from this church? We no longer think about the church as what it is responsible to do and to give in the world. We don't think about what we've already been given. That we have been given the truth in Jesus Christ. That we have been told what is true, that we might understand and discern what is false. And so we don't come to church asking what it is I can get out of this particular congregation. What needs of mine will this church meet? But rather, what do I contribute as a joint or a ligament, gifted by the Holy Spirit as I must be if I am in Christ? What do I contribute to the support and the bulwark of truth in the world? What is my role in this manifestation of the manifold wisdom of God, not just in the world to men, but to the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places? He goes on in verse 16 to quote what is widely considered to be an early hymn in the church. And the structure of this particular passage makes it undoubtedly at least a poem. Extra biblical testimony, especially that of Pliny the Younger and his writings to Trajan the Emperor, indicate that the church in its early days did sing antiphonally. In other words, it sang responsive songs back and forth regarding this one called Jesus whom they view as a god. That was Pliny's way of looking at it. This is quite likely one of those hymns, or at least one of the, of the stanzas, which I, I find encouraging, or at least um, many should find it encouraging. I don't do it very much, but it was once very popular to quote hymns within sermons. And here we see Paul doing the same thing. So it's like, it's okay. You can, you can quote a hymn. You can quote Isaac Watts in, in your sermon, and, and it's okay. Uh, even Charles Wesley. Um, so he goes on to say, He who was revealed in the flesh... Now, again, the structure, I, I, you know, I wish I could kind of put it up there in the Greek because each of the verbs is in the very same form. Okay, it's a, a passive verb and then it's followed by the same type of noun. And it's very, very short, very brief, as if it were a song. And it's a very short song 
which also teaches us that the length of the song doesn't necessarily make it more holy. I don't know, they may have sung this over and over again, 11 times, you know, like, I don't think so. But it's still, it's, 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 uh, it really is beautiful poetry, beautiful music. He who was revealed in the flesh, literally manifested, or, or uh, revelation is the word, in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed or preached in the world, believed on, or among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, like most poetry, there are as many interpretations of it as there are writers who have written on it. The form of it, the parallelism, is, is always disagreed upon, but there is universal agreement upon the subject of this poem. It's Jesus Christ. And I'm going to offer you tonight my interpretation of the structure because I do believe that this is a hymn that, that is the comprehensive life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ in six little verses. Manifested in the flesh. Well, this, I believe, refers to His incarnation. His life on earth as the Son of Man. Vindicated in the Spirit. Well, this would probably point to his baptism, where the Spirit descended upon him as a dove, and the voice came out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. But also his ministry. We, we read in Matthew chapter 12 that the Pharisees claim that Jesus' majestic works were the product of the devil. Jesus himself said, No, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He called that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to attribute his works to the works of the devil. So vindicated in the Spirit also speaks of the ministry, the healing, the raising from the dead during his life's work. Seen by angels. To me, this, this speaks of his passion, his suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was ministered to by angels but also his death on the cross and the, and the natural events that occurred at that time and his resurrection. But I think the next three speak of his ongoing work. That even though he has left the earth, he said to his disciples, greater things will you do because I go to the Father. And Luke speaks in the first chapter of Acts, as if what he's about to write concerning the life of the church is a continuation of the work of Jesus Christ. He says to Theophilus, the former book that I wrote to you about what Jesus began to do and teach, as if to say I now write the second volume about what Jesus Christ continues to do and teach by his Holy Spirit through the church, Proclaimed among the nations. And this would have, I think, been the, the verse that uh, Paul sang loudest in the congregation. Because his life's work was the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. It was within the disciples' own lifetime that men said of them, these are those who have turned the world upside down. It would be a wonderful testimony if men would say that again of the church. That we would once again 
turned the world upside down, believed on in the world. This is the growth of the church finally taken up in glory. Now that refers, it seems, to his ascension. But I don't believe that that is what Paul is speaking of here. I think he's speaking more of what he refers to in, de in detail in 1 Corinthians 15. That Jesus Christ was indeed taken up from the earth. But if you read the passage in Acts, it's not in glory. He merely departs from the earth. The glory that he speaks of is when he comes again with his saints, with his holy angels. And so while the ascension is, is the foretaste, it's really the second coming, the parousia, of which this hymn speaks. So this is Jesus from the beginning to the end, from his incarnation, born of a virgin in Bethlehem, to his final appearance in glory, when he will sum up all things in himself. This is the message of the church. This is a little verse right here that we should commit to memory. Because it encapsulates in, in six little stanzas the entirety of the ministry and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. But to Paul's purpose, it is the essence of the truth. This is the message of the church, which she must preach faithfully in every generation. It doesn't change. And we must preach the truth as it is in Jesus Christ and guard vigilantly by our own single-minded obedience to God's rule. This is where that order comes back in. Paul, underlying Paul's writings to the, his churches, is the, the understanding that he has that every time the church is disrupted by dissension, is corrupted by sin, the message of the truth is diminished. It might even be destroyed. Paul's simple message then is preach the gospel and behave yourself. Let's pray. Father, we ask humbly that we might be as a congregation faithful to this word. That you might help us to resist distractions and to understand that the purpose of the church is to be the foundation and the bulwark of the truth in the world. We pray, Father, that in our lives and together as a church, we might live orderly lives, maintaining our households well, but also the household of God, your church. We pray, indeed, that you would deliver us from open and unrepentant sin. We pray that you would deliver us from any dissension. We thank you for the, the years of peace fellowship that we have enjoyed and pray that it might not be taken away, but it also might not serve as an occasion for dissension and disagreement, but rather that we might each devote ourselves to the knowledge of the truth, to prayer, that we might lift up our hands toward you and pray that the church would fulfill its function not only at Fellowship Bible Church, which is a small congregation, but rather throughout the world. We long to see the church be what it was intended to be, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. We ask, Father, that you would do this for your glory and for the exaltation of the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, stand with me to receive the benediction this evening.
essentially a, a prayer from Paul in Colossians chapter 2, where he prays that our hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance and understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Amen.